A reading from Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wine strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 to 3. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our text from Isaiah 25 is a word of hope set in the midst of gloom and destruction and disappointment. Judah has, over the years, been trampled by Egypt and Assyria in conquest, subjected to punishment and deportation by its overlords. They had lots of trouble with those around them. At one point, there was nothing left of the kingdom but Jerusalem itself. Those who remained faithful were few and dispirited and discouraged. For three years, the prophet Isaiah ran through the streets of Jerusalem naked. So the people would pay attention to him. It's hard to be a prophet. In the chapters around our reading, there are lots of dire threats for Judah's neighbors, uh, for its occupiers, for all those who have not been faithful. In chapter 24 are these words. Now the Lord is about to lay waste to the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. So it shall be with the people, so with the priest, so with the slave, so with the slave's master, so with the maid and her mistress, so with the buyer and the seller, with the lender and the borrower, the creditor and the debtor. The earth shall be utterly laid waste and utterly despoiled. Sounds like a pandemic, doesn't it? And no one was spared. A curse will devour the earth, the prophet says. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is torn asunder. The earth 
is violently shaken. The earth staggers and falls and will not rise again. All this from a man running through the streets naked. There is a suffocating hopelessness here. In our first Zoom virtual prayer meeting on a Wednesday night three weeks ago, among those gathered were Lee and Joanna Stamen with Arnie and Anders. In such difficult times as this, it was heartening to see Arnie and Anders filled with hope and joy. It was soon bedtime for them. Lee and Joanna slipped away to put the boys in bed. When Lee came back, he told us he had asked Arnie what we should pray for. I think we should pray for the whole earth, Arnie said. And so we did. I think we should pray for the whole earth. Those are good, hopeful words in the midst of a viral pandemic. They're also words of hope in the darkness of Isaiah 24, where the earth is utterly broken. And Arnie's words are the perfect introduction to Isaiah 25, where hope breaks through all the threats and the discouragement, the fear and the death. Just when you think the desolation will never end, then come these words. You, O oh God, have been a refuge to the needy in their distress. On this mountain, the Lord will make a feast of rich food and well-aged wines for all peoples. The shroud of fear and death will be completely destroyed, and the Lord of hosts will swallow up death forever. And the song of those who are ruthless, those who do the work of death, will be stilled. Death is usually the one who swallows up everyone and everything in the end. Anyone who has ever stood by an open grave understands this existentially. At the grave, death opens its mouth and mocks the living. But in Psalm 139, we are reminded that even the grave is no hiding place from God. God comes looking for us there. Where can I escape your presence? Where can I flee your spirit? If I make my bed in the grave, even there you will find me and deliver me. God is relentless. God comes looking for us. And here in Isaiah 25 is the promise that one day death will no longer swallow anyone. Its mouth will be closed. God will swallow death forever. All disgrace will be swept away, all tears will be wiped away, and all will say, this is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Arnie said, I think we should pray for the whole earth. This feast on the mountain, when death is finally vanquished, is a feast for all peoples. Arnie prays God's own prayer. And yet, death is still with us. Death is all around us in this pandemic. Death is hidden, but present and inescapable. 
death still swallows up lives of those who are precious to God. Where is the hope? Hope shines brightest in desolation. And so we go to the beginning of our gospel text from Mark. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome went to the tomb where Jesus had been buried. Death had swallowed him. They brought spices to anoint his body, such tenderness in the midst of horrific grief. When someone you love dies, you will try to find something, anything to do that will get you through it. For them, the promise of Isaiah that death would be destroyed, swallowed up, was the farthest thing from their minds. They wanted a last look to see for themselves that he was gone. They wanted to tenderly anoint him, a very intimate thing. They wanted to touch and kiss his face. They wanted to hold his hands, hands that had once held theirs. So they went to the tomb as grieving people do, wondering what they would find there, wondering if they would get in. But hope shines brightest in desolation, and it is in the most unlikely places that God comes looking for us. They were in for a surprise. Our second reflection this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verses 4 through 7. Mark writes, But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. When I'm having a rough day, sometimes I like to watch reaction videos on YouTube the kind where a dog reunites with its long-lost owner, or soldiers coming home from deployment hug and kiss their loved ones at the airport, or couples make pregnancy announcements to unsuspecting family members. I like these kinds of videos because of the joy is contagious. The puppies leap into their humans' arms. Families celebrate being home together safely. New life is being brought into the world. There is so much to be happy about. The excitement of these moments fills my heart with a kind of voyeuristic secondhand surprise. For a few minutes, it restores my faith in the good and beautiful nature of our world, and I feel part of a larger story of hope and love. However, this piece of the narrative from Mark isn't the kind of reaction video that I would watch to cheer myself up. We don't find any positive or over-the-top, dramatically joyful surprises here. We see a very different kind of emotional reaction to the good news of Jesus' resurrection. For me personally, 
the Mark passage hasn't always felt like an appropriate version of the Easter story. It doesn't feel triumphant, or victorious, or even optimistic. But this year, I've seen this text with fresh eyes, and I can see exactly why our biblical authors felt that it was important to include. After the women arrive at the tomb, they find that the stone in front of the tomb has already been rolled away. They find the tomb empty except for a man in a white robe, with no sign of Jesus or any idea of where he has been taken. In my preparation for this Holy Week, I led myself through a Lectio Divina of this passage, reading it slowly, over and over and over again, to see what words or phrases stood out to me. After the second time reading through these verses, I was caught up in the emotional reaction that these women have to this unexpected scene. I was struck that these women, in response to finding the tomb empty, are immediately alarmed. And this emotion is repeated when the man in the white robe calls to them and says, Do not be alarmed. This passage that is supposed to be about good news begins with news that is so strange that it sends its recipients into shock and fear. I think all of us can empathize with the alarm of the women at the tomb, maybe this year more than most. Their alarm seems like an appropriate reaction to the confusing and grief-filled experience we can understand why they would feel such panic. They have just had their world turned upside down, and their bodies and souls respond in possibly the only way that makes sense to them. Indeed, we too have experienced something similar recently. As our lives have become so completely topsy-turvy in the past month, and the alarm has resonated at all levels of our local community and larger national landscape. We feel acutely the alarm over the health and safety of all people, but especially for those who are vulnerable, the essential workers of our society, the healthcare professionals who are selfless in their care for others. We know the alarm and disappointment of canceled plans and disrupted routines. We sense the alarm over meeting all kinds of new and unexpected needs in our families, in our jobs, and for ourselves. We experience the alarm of being isolated in our homes, missing our loved ones, and being away from our traditional support systems. We face the alarm of navigating difficult financial circumstances. We feel very deeply the alarm over losing loved ones. The reality of grief makes our hearts ache. If you are alarmed in any way these days, you are in good company on this Easter morning. 
you join a faithful group of women who came to the tomb of their Lord in the early hours, bearing the weight of so much uncertainty. By the third time that I read this passage all the way through, with thoughts of alarm echoing in my head, something else caught my attention. In verse 7, after the man in the white robe had told the women that Jesus is gone, he says to them, He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. To these grieving women, this good news seems to be getting stranger and stranger. The man said to these women that not only had Jesus risen from the dead, but he was already on the move. Jesus, who had been laid in the tomb, was gone. He was already on his way to Galilee, heading north, to fulfill his promises. The risen Lord was preparing the way, and all the women had to do was to follow and to remember his word to them. In seminary, we read a book that forever changed how I experience and think about Easter. The famous theologian N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope, transformed the way I see the resurrection and God's plan for wholeness and reconciliation. Even more than the content of the book, the title has remained with me, and it came to me this week while I was reading this passage. It has been a guide for me during these alarming moments in my life, and especially these past few weeks. He writes, Easter was when hope in person surprised the whole world by coming forward from the future into the present. Surprised by hope. The man in the white robe, in the middle of this alarming moment, tells the women that not only is Jesus alive, but he was already at work, and he will be waiting for them just as he promised. This is not to say that their alarm isn't real, or that these words suddenly change their overall sense of grief and confusion. It certainly doesn't mean that the panic and worry twisting around in our guts at this moment in time isn't valid. Our own feelings of alarm are still very much with us. But on this very different kind of Easter, I believe that alarm and hope can actually coexist. It is possible to feel both of them at once. Maybe this Easter morning, anxiety is all that you can feel. I want to affirm that if that is the place that you find yourself this morning, it is a solidly biblical place to be. This Easter, you might just need to sit with that alarm and this non-triumphant version of the story. We can all acknowledge that we are caught off guard by the uncertainty of it all. 
But if you feel even a faint flicker of hope inside of you, a little seed waiting to burst forth from the soil, verse 7 has some good news that our weary hearts can hold on to. If you feel like you can hold both your alarm and some hope this morning, maybe one in each hand, this is what our man in white tells us. Our Jesus is no longer dead. In fact, he is already out in front of us, leading the way back home. Our Jesus keeps his promises, and we will see him again, just like he told us. We too can be surprised by hope. Amen. Perhaps the best picture of the resurrection that I have ever seen came to me in the form of a couch. The year was 2010 and I was in college, the church calendar. It was a very new topic for me. I had attended Good Friday services and celebrated Easter growing up, but Lent? I knew very little about it. I didn't know much about Easter vigils, giving things up for Lent, Holy Saturdays, and the colors that people put on the altars during seasons of the church. And honestly, it all felt a little bit contrived to me, maybe. Was it really so important to not say hallelujah during this season? Did it matter that we not jump right into Easter after celebrations on Good Friday? But part of me, too, was grateful for this education. Growing up, I loved attending the Good Friday service at my church. I really loved the drama of it all as we read and acted out Jesus's last days. And I really loved sitting in the sadness of it a little bit. It almost felt like the one time I was allowed to feel those sorts of things in church. Sometimes I think churches, they tell us that we need to act all triumphant and happy all of the time. Remembering that Christ is victorious. Be happy, they say. Christ died for you, they'd remind me. When in fact, sometimes we can't move on that quickly from the sad times. Sometimes we're sad and in the middle of difficulty. And Good Friday, that was a time that I was allowed to leave church feeling sad. It was needed. It felt right. We aren't always ready for Easter to move on or to be happy. It just doesn't always work that way. But in the middle of enjoying this newfound knowledge of what Lent and Good Friday meant, one of my theology professors asked me and a few other students to come over to his and his wife's house on Holy Saturday to decorate for Easter. And despite my gladness to sit in the morning of Good Friday for a bit longer, and despite wondering how much decorated needed to happen, decorating needed to happen in order to make them hire college students to help out, I said yes. The promise of free snacks and 20 bucks to a college student is far too tempting to turn down. And so I set out for the adventure. And when we arrived, our professor's wife greeted us at the door and sat us down around her kitchen island for homemade granola bars and apple slices. And I took in their house as she asked us about our Easter plans and as she told us about her own. And when she took us into the other rooms of the house, I was so taken aback. What a cold living room she had. The white mantle was empty and the furniture was gray and black. There were no pictures and little else that told the story of who they were. In fact, the whole house was gray, white, and black. Were they monks? 
ascetics? Do they hate fun things? And when all the granola bars were gone, she took us down to the basement and began pulling out all sorts of decorations from the shelves and out of Rubbermaid bins. The amount of stuffed rabbits, Easter eggs, crosses, flowers, it was all very overwhelming. This is why they needed help, I supposed. Would all these decorations even fit upstairs? And we traipsed up and down, arms heavy laden with all the stuff. And when we had finally placed everything on the living room floor, she informed us that the first thing we had to tackle was decorating the couches. And I looked at the gray couches a little curiously. What were we to do with them? Did they need vacuuming? My mother was always a stickler for cleaning everything before we decorated. Perhaps this is what was happening. Were we moving all the couches maybe? Were we moving them out to create a space for a celebratory resurrection dance party? And wouldn't that be the best use of liturgy? But this dear woman walked over to the biggest couch with determination. She took hold of the bottom gray dust ruffle and with a flourish of barely contained excitement, pulled it up and over the cushions to reveal the most beautiful summer yellow and cornflower blue upholstery that I have ever laid my eyes upon. From flat gray to stripes. I had to adjust to the shock of couch covers for a moment. Who knew? Who knew that gray was hiding under such wild joy? She tossed me a white pillow, and upon finding the zipper, I tore off the sham to reveal bright red flowers. My fellow students and I looked at each other with slowly forming grins. We turned our gaze back to the living room and we began to attack the couches with glee, barely able to contain our joy as with bated breath, we found each zipper and button and pulled them off to see what sort of glory might be revealed underneath. And it seems a little stupid, maybe, the res that the resurrection of all things would be revealed to me in fullness through couches and pillow shams. But there it was, in my professor's living room, upholstery, there it was, the magnificence of love coming back to life. The truth of grace in cotton and fabric. I think at one point I choked out a, he is risen, to my companions and tears filled my eyes as I laughed at my own wonder. I simply love embodied things. And I love finding Jesus in the most unexpected of places. And in that moment, I fell in love with liturgy. The long wait in gray to the sudden transformation of color felt a little bit like life, I suppose. But at the end of the book of Mark, we find a little bit less joy. We only read the text up through verse eight this morning. We only read it up through verse eight this morning. And you might be wondering why. Though verse eight doesn't seem like the right ending to the gospel, as we find, we find the women at the tomb bewildered, confused, trembling, and afraid. And though the angel tells them what has happened and what they can do about it, they go to their homes and they don't seem to say a single word. While this doesn't seem to be how the gospel should end, verse 8 is the oldest and most official ending of the book of Mark, according to almost all Markan scholars. The following verses were almost certainly added later. And while perhaps the writer of Mark meant to write more, perhaps his ending was lost, the manuscript dissolved with age, or perhaps he was martyred before a more appropriate ending came to be. So our text has no joyful ending no revealing of red pillows under the couch covers, no bright cushions beneath the terror of gray of Good Friday, just fear and confusion. 
we hear that Jesus rises and no one says anything. People are simply afraid. Do we even have confirmation that this happened? And the women in Mark have been lifted up throughout this gospel. I love preaching about the women in Mark. When the male disciples disappoint and leave Jesus, the women are still there. They have cared for Jesus the whole time. And in most other gospels, the women at the tomb are told by the angel or by Jesus, according to different accounts, to preach the good news and they go and do it. In the other accounts, this is the final word we need for having women preachers. Jesus asks them to preach, and without them doing so, we wouldn't have news of the resurrection, the main piece of our faith. And yet, in Mark, things get so much more complicated. When the women show up at the tomb to prepare Jesus' body for burial and encounter something different and something so wholly amazing and wonderful, they too fail as disciples. They go away in fear just like the male disciples did. So why did they shy away in fear? I imagine, I bet it could be many reasons. The women at the tomb probably didn't expect Jesus to rise from the dead. I mean, this isn't something that happens very often. Some commentators suggest that the women, per women perhaps did have a smidgen of hope that he would rise. Jesus had certainly done wild things in that line of thinking. He had raised others from the dead and healed them. Perhaps the women thought he might raise himself too. Maybe they had just a smidgen of hope. But no matter their secret thoughts on this, that perhaps we will never know, they brought spices to prepare the body. They were prepared to encounter more death and sadness. They were ready to care for the body of their friend. No matter what hope they had, they still brought the burial spices. So, did they go away because they were in too much grief to process this weird thing that happened with the angel? Did they hide because they didn't believe it? Did they leave with fear because it all didn't make much sense? After all, who's able to raise themselves from the dead no matter how much of a miracle worker or healer you are? Or maybe, maybe the angel scared them. In scripture, angels are apparently terrifying. They aren't like the cuddly cherubs, like precious moments figurines suggest. Angels are wild and fierce and tell every human they come into contact with to not be afraid, because apparently that's the first thing that humans feel when encountering an angel. Or maybe these women, they didn't say anything because they knew their societal realities too. They knew that a woman's testimony wouldn't be listened to no matter how wonderful their friends the disciples were. If multiple women's testimonies counted for one man's in the court of the land that day, who would believe them when they spoke on their friend, the convicted criminal, the heretic, the scandalous traveling rabbi rising from the dead? Maybe after being silenced for so long in their lives and in society, they had trouble being vocal now that it was asked of them. They were empowered, but they struggled to believe it, maybe. They were free to speak, but they had lived in chains for so long that they didn't know how to walk in freedom and preach the good news now. Sure, we've felt that sometimes, too. But the good news, the Easter message at the end of Mark, is that despite all of humanity's confusions and failings and fear that these women have in living into the resurrection life freedom, Christ still rises. Despite gray couch covers, there's still beauty underneath. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth that Christ has risen. Christ has risen despite their doubts, despite their theological confusion, despite even Paul's own failings and unfitness as an apostle as he preached and did violence towards people before following Jesus. Paul didn't feel worthy to be preaching this good news, to receive the resurrection life freedom, and yet there it was for him. And here it is for us too. We're stuck at home a bit like the women in our text and like the male disciples. We are stuck at home because of this virus. We are perhaps afraid too, in the middle of so much change. We're afraid of getting the virus maybe and we're taking healthy and wise precautions. But on Easter, it's difficult to be stuck at home. This is the highest holy day of our year. Resurrection life seems a little far away and very hard to believe. And maybe like me, you're someone who appreciates the season of Lent for the time that it gives us to grieve, to confess, to be sad and sit in the hard things without being pressured to move on quickly to the joy of Easter. The Mark text definitely gives us space for that as a people. Maybe you don't feel like celebrating much right now when our world is suffering in a pandemic, when societal things aren't all solved. When oppression still happens and pandemics make inequality all the more apparent, maybe you aren't feeling that Easter joy and the Markan text makes space for you in that. And yet, in the middle of it all, Christ still rises. We may fail, our world may fail. We may be like the women at the tomb and trembling and afraid. We may be discouraged at home and feeling lonely. We may be feeling not worthy like the Apostle Paul. We may be in grief or exhausted. And Jesus meets us in those places like the women's fear at the end of Mark and Christ still rises. And though we have been in death and suffering for a while, Christ still rises and asks us, invites us to rise with him. To know that Christ has good things in store for us, that Christ loves us and has our good in mind. Christ still rises and invites us, even in the middle of a pandemic, to hold on the hope, on to hope that we will rise too. That is the promise of the resurrection. Not only Christ rises, but we will rise too. Ancient writing has, was written to change people, and I think verse 8 in Mark is all about this. Whether it is the ending of Mark meant for his gospel or not, despite the true difficulty of our circumstances, and it cannot be overlooked that these circumstances are difficult, it cannot be brushed over or ignored. We must sit in that and do the long journey with Jesus of working it out as our heart breaks. But despite the true difficulty of our circumstances, Christ still rises and the end of Mark invites us to that change. Our church may be closed, but Christ still rises. Our world is sick, but Christ still rises. We are lonely, but Christ still rises. We are afraid, but Christ still rises. We are in grief, but Christ still rises. We are exhausted, but Christ still rises. We have doubts, but Christ still rises. We are angry, but Christ still rises. It doesn't make sense, but Christ still rises. We, like the women at the tomb, like the disciples, like the Apostle Paul, we will fail, are failing, but Christ still rises. And though we are alone, tired, afraid, 
In fear and trembling, doubting, even angry at God in the middle of these wild circumstances, the risen Christ meets us there. And like Christ, we are invited to believe that we too will rise. We believe in hope. We believe in the resurrection. So this Easter season, as things continue to be truly confusing and difficult in each of our homes and hearts, may you know the truth that Christ still rises. May you see Christ even in the small and mundane things. May Christ show you himself and keep inviting you back into the sunshine as it hits your face. Through a clean sink, through loved ones reaching out, through a good homemade meal, through time spent alone, and in any of the other ways our creative God might invite you to encounter him and the resurrection. And if you are having a hard time finding the risen Christ in this time, which you might be, if you are having a hard time believing, having a hard time finding that Easter joy, I suggest looking somewhere you wouldn't expect. I suggest inspecting your couch cushions. <laughs>